From the we should have done this a long time ago, but better late than never category. Welcome to the best of podcast. I host multiple shows during the week. I figure I could pull the good stuff, at least some of it, throw it together in a podcast and some of you would listen. So you clearly are one of those people as you have found this. I appreciate you doing so, uh, whether you are subscribed to the old podcast feed or saw the link on Twitter or however you found this. I greatly appreciate it. On the Best Of Show today, interviews with Amy Trask of CBS Sports, former CEO of the Raiders, uh, with Tom Haverstrow of ESPN.com, a Redskins topic that'll start, and a bit of nonsense as well. Uh, So that's all on the podcast today. Make sure you check out the live shows as well during the week. I'll come back on the back end and tell you when those are. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. My pleasure now to bring in the former CEO of the Oakland Raiders. She is now an analyst with CBS Sports. Amy Trask is with us. Amy, hi. Hello. How, how are you? I am fantastic. Uh, we've had a great couple of sports days here, and that, that tends to help things. Well, there you go. Uh, so the story of today uh, in football circles around here was one that I, I wanted to bring you in on because I, I think you can provide perspective on it, and that is the timeline of the off season. Uh, some reports came out that the Redskins haven't talked to any of their free agents yet. And, of course, fans freaked out. And I guess the very simple question is, should they be a little perturbed by that uh, with where we are in the NFL calendar? You know what I learned over the uh, years I was in the league is that each team uh, marches to the beat of its own drummer, so to speak. And each team has different schedules for their off season. So, you know, I wouldn't be overly alarmed yet. I think very, very highly of Scott McLuhan. You know, I've said for quite a while now that that was um, the best move Washington has made in quite a while was to bring in a football mind of his ilk. And my guess is he has a plan. But you're right. You're right. It is aberrational. Um, I wouldn't be alarmed yet, but it certainly is different than what most teams do. How does it play out when you have to, like the Redskins did, hire coaching staff and then you have the senior bowl? Like, there, There's stuff on the calendar. Um, how, how difficult is it to balance doing multiple things at once uh, within a front office? And, and kind of uh, when you guys were doing it with the Raiders, what was your schedule like in the month following the season? Well, I don't think it's that difficult to do multiple things at once. And when you're not making a change at the head coaching position, or at a general manager position, things are sort of routine in that regard. Now, all bets off, so to speak, and no pun intended, uh, when you're changing a head coach, because then you do have an entirely different, different scenario than when you are not. And by the way, let me let you in on a little secret. Mm-hmm. I work for someone who changed head coaches a lot. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I was, I was going to say. Also, we should we should probably for those that that didn't connect the dots say that things in Oakland uh, with the great Syracuse Orangeman Al Davis at the helm probably ran a little bit differently than other places in the league. Did you did you ever talk to other people in the league and be like, oh oh no, we we do things that that's not how oh, we do it. You know, a- absolutely. Um, you know, I was in the league for almost 30 years, and so, of course, one talks with one's colleague throughout the years. But I didn't need to tell anyone we did things a little bit differently <laughs> in Oakland. They looked at me very knowingly and understood we did. And, you know, look, all teasing aside, um, I remember driving home uh, during a particularly rough season for the team. And as I would drive home, there was a giant billboard over the freeway, and it said, 
Al, get a general manager. And I remember thinking, we have one. We have one. His name is Al. <laughs> and um, he oversaw our football operations, as was his absolute right. He was a sensational, sensational football man. And um, But look, you look at things differently when you are in your late 70s and you know, Ill, Ill health and facing your mortality than you do at different times in your life. Sure, sure, absolutely. Amy Trask, former CEO of the Raiders, with us here now with CBS Sports on 1067 The Fan. I guess the other big football story of the day, uh, league wise, was that uh, Steve Sarkeesian winds up spending exactly one game at Alabama, the national championship game, as offensive coordinator, and then leaves for the Falcons. And uh, I, I guess there was some conversation when, when the Raiders hired Lane Kiffin uh, many years ago that of Sarkeesian getting that job as well. Can you talk about that at all? Um, yeah, he was absolutely on the radar screen. Al had him targeted. Al dispatched someone down to uh, uh, USC, I believe it was at the time, to, to talk with him. He was an assistant there. And... Um, you know, it didn't work out. And then, you know, I think Steve was with SC at the time, but wherever Steve was, Al dispatched someone there, and, and we um, ended up with Lane instead. But Steve was very, very much on the radar screen. What did you guys make of him and, and the potential for him to be an NFL coach? I'll leave it at, at NFL coach and, and deal with the NFL schedule and the NFL offense versus a, a head coach. What did you guys make of him? Well, you know, I never met with Steve during that process. Okay. I was... You know, I'm going to brag about one thing because you just, <laughs> what, what do the kids today call it? Humble brag? Yes. Only it's not going to be so humble. Um, I won't uh, hold Al it against involved, you. Okay, thank you. Al only involved me in one coaching search over the course of my career. And um, he had me meet with all the candidates. And after I had, he said, who do you recommend? And I said, Bill Belichick. And I, I swear to you, I never, ever thought he would let that be known publicly. I thought it would be a conversation that remained between us. And when he shared that publicly, um, I was both touched he did and delighted he did because, I, you know, that was my only opportunity to be involved in a coaching search. And um, I will just declare one and done and, and deem it a success. Well, let's follow up on that, though. What did you like about Bill Belichick? Why, why was he the one that stuck out in that particular coaching search to you? And, and by the way, I will say Al opted to go in a different direction, but hired another tremendous coach in John Gruden. So he made a good decision. That I just worked thought, out all right. Yeah, it did. Um, I was sensationally impressed with Bill's intelligence. Um, there's an expression they use up in New England, wicked smart. And, and he's just that smart. And I liked his intelligence and his approach to football. And I thought he'd be a spectacular head coach. That, that seems rather prescient, uh, knowing what we know now. Uh, when you look at how New England builds their entire operation franchise-wide, I, I struggle with trying to see, okay, is this something that another organization could replicate without Belichick? Some just, and part of it is just the ability for Bill to hold people accountable at a level that other coaches and players don't seem to be able to develop a relationship in that way. How, how, uh, I don't, because you can't exactly do it because you don't, you know, you're not, unless you have Brady, it doesn't work. But how close could another organization get if they really were willing to empower a coach like that, like New England has with Belichick? I think that's a sensational question. It's almost like you do this for a living or something, asking questions <laughs> well, like that. You, you might want to look in, you might want to look into this as a career. Vic, cut um, that from my boss, please. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a sensational question, and you, you hit on a lot of key points um, when you articulated the question. Because, yes, Bill is absolutely positively spectacular. And, you know, I talk on this, I talk about this on CBS um, quite often. I think he's absolutely bar none the best NFL coach ever. And people scream and holler and yell when I say things like that because they ask me about coaches who came before him, whether Vince Lombardi or Bill Walsh or any number of other coaches. To which I answer, those coaches, also sensational, of course, were not operating under the modern era rules of free agency and salary cap and player movement. So I consider Bill the best coach of all time. But even if people disagree with me as to whether he's at the tippity top of the list, he's very, very high on it in everyone's mind. So you're right, that is a distinction. But you used another word, which was empower. And I think in New England, it starts with ownership. Ownership has created an environment in New England, which is allowing Bill to succeed the way he is succeeding. They do everything. Look, there are NFL teams which succeed on the field. There are NFL teams which succeed on the balance sheet, if you will, or measured by EBITDA or any other financial measurement we wish to use. There are very few who succeed as stupendously as does New England, both on the field and off the field. Kind of easy to maybe do one if you put the other aside or vice versa, and I shouldn't say easy, but less difficult. But to succeed the way New England is succeeding both on and off the field is really something to behold. And listen, that's coming from a Raider. So you can understand how sincerely I mean that if I articulate it in that manner. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we all can remember, uh, and I will, I will just mention it in passing, how this whole thing started with New England. And that's that's, that's as, as snowy night. Yep, that's as much as I'll touch on it because right now you seem to like me and I'd like to keep it that way. Well, Amy, I, thought, I thought you were going to say that's as much as you'll touch on it so I don't violate every FCC rule known that to mankind. That too, that too. And with that, let's just let's keep moving. Uh, okay. <laughs> Amy Trask, the former CEO of the Raiders with me, Craig Hoffman, here tonight on overtime on 106.7 The Fan. Um, speaking of people that want to violate a lot of FCC rules, uh, the Falcons, obviously, um, they had that game as one as you can possibly have it in the NFL uh, with with considering what is on the other side. And Boy. sure enough, sure enough, it, it comes back. And I just, I always wonder um, how coaches seem to not have control of the clock and and just the minute details and it's one of the things that obviously Belichick is so on top of but I, I guess when you when you talk amongst yourselves in, in football meetings and uh, you know you're obviously coming at it from a front office perspective and you're not necessarily in the coaching meetings but h- how does situational football uh, how is it still so bad at the NFL level or something like no. being up being up like the Falcons were uh, you can let a team back in it Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, have you hit on something that, you know, we do something each week on CBS called Hot Topics, and it's something that makes us kind of hot and angry or or upset. And every week, it seemed, I was on a situational football scenario which had arisen the week before. Um, Look, it is one thing to lose a football game because the other team has better personnel. It is one thing to lose a football game because you can't cover the other team's receivers or you can't block their defensive ends. But to lose a football game because you have no understanding of situ or, or you've forgotten about situational football and clock management, 
These are the things, I'll tell you, these are the things that make front office personnel go absolutely bonkers. You're sitting upstairs, you're watching the game. Atlanta had that game won. At the end of the game, had Atlanta run the ball, and I don't remember now whether it was two or three times they could have run the ball, and kicked that field goal, look, makeable field goal, not every field goal that's makeable is made. But if they run the ball and kick the field goal, they're up by 11. They've run more time off the clock. These are the things that make front office people age in dog years during games. And by the way, I think I look okay for a 2,855-year-old woman. Because you sit up there as a front office person. And look, you know, you get it if your tackle can't block a pass rusher. But to not understand situational football. I found what happened at the end of the game incomprehensible. That game was Atlanta's to win. And by the way, even if you take away the the passing versus running, um, Atlanta wasn't even letting the play clock go down as low as it could. There were plays where they were getting the ball off with 20, 10 or 15 seconds left. Why would you do that? Why would you leave Bill Belichick and Tom Brady with more time on the clock than need be. And I'll just say one other thing, and then I'll get off my little rant-a-thon. But comment was made that Dan Quinn had turned the offense over entirely to Kyle Shanahan, and those were Kyle's decisions to make, and Kyle has owned that. But let me tell you something. If that's Bill Belichick on the sideline, and, and I'll put in a footnote, I think highly of Dan Quinn, he's a good coach. But if Bill Belichick is on the sideline, he is talking to his offensive coordinator in language I won't use on your airwaves and saying, I want a running play. Give me running plays. I mean, that's kind of football 101. Right. No, that's exactly what I said. And, And if it was all on Kyle, then I made a mistake on Twitter the other night because people were asking, how does, oh, it's all Kyle, Kyle. I'm like, no, 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 no. Dan Quinn probably tells Kyle Shanahan, hey, go be aggressive, go win it, or hey, let's let clock is our friend here, and the play calls go from there. He's not calling the plays, but he's telling him what our clock strategy is, and if he's not, that's a failure well, he of a head be. coach. You know, he should be. And, le- and let me um, correct myself or, or better state what I was trying to state. Shanahan is calling the plays, but right. you are 100% right. Ultimately, the head coach is and should be responsible for everything that goes on the field. So even if he's not calling the precise play, and this was the point I was making about Belichick, he is responsible for situational awareness, clock management awareness. He is responsible to say, this is what we're going to do here. Give me a running play. And by the way, why is someone not in Matt Ryan's ear? And if they were, why was he not listening to run that clock down. That just, look, it was a game that was Atlanta's to win. And I am so sorry if there are Falcon fans listening. Believe me, I understand how badly it hurts. But to lose a game you could have won hurts more than anything. No doubt about it. I'll ask you this one on the way out. What what can, because this is an epidemic in the NFL. It's something we dealt with in Washington the past couple of years. And again, from a very smart head coach in Jay Gruden and a, a fairly intelligent quarterback in Kirk Cousins, a man who last year in Philadelphia, when a play went awry and he should have spiked it 
took a knee at, to end the first half at the two-yard line um, when he's otherwise fairly intelligent. Um, what can be done about this? Because you have an unlimited amount of coaches, basically, you can hire. And, and if there's a clock management coach or whatever it is, like what what is done to fix this? Well, it's almost as if you and I were separated at birth about a million <laughs> years apart. Um, but but I talk about this all the time. You're 100% right. There's a zillion coaches over the, the years I was in the league. I saw coaching staffs grow and grow and grow and grow. And I know what I would do were I a head coach. I would have one person. And by the way, this can be someone that is the most entry-level entry coach, um, coaches that are routinely referred to as quality control coaches. Well, you have a quality control coach on offense and you have one on defense. And what these are is are young coaches who know the game and who are growing within a staff. And I would have one of them glued to my side during the game. And his or her only job would be to be aware of the situation aware of down and distance, aware of the clock, aware of everything that goes into situational football. And that, well, you know, he could be next to me or upstairs, but every situation that person would weigh in if we were heading in the wrong direction or give suggestions as to how to handle it. I could not agree more. Amy Trask of CBS Sports. She's also an author. Her book is available now. It's called You Negotiate Like a Girl. She was in the NFL for nearly 30 years, CEO of the Raiders. Amy, always appreciate doing this. I'm sure we will talk more in the offseason. Be well until then, and we'll talk soon. I sure hope so. It's always my pleasure to join you. I love your questions. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. That is Amy Trask of CBS Sports. You can follow her on Twitter as well, by the way. By the way, at Amy Trask. Vic, send that all to, all to CK. All the comp, just little compliment montage. CEO, former CEO of the Raiders. She's smart and she likes me. So we'll go, we'll go with that. She thinks I'm smart. That's, that's a better. It's not just she likes me. She thinks I'm smart. She may be the only one, but I'll take it. The Redskins organization is not imploding. The Redskins organization is doing dysfunctional Redskins things because their PR strategy, and I want to be very careful how I say this and who I pin the blame on. Their PR strategy is moronic, okay? How's that for being careful? Their PR strategy is moronic, but it's not the fault of their PR staff. I often find myself feeling very bad for the PR staff there because there are PR people that are very smart and PR people that have been very successful and, and, and some of whom, I mean, look, I know Tony Wiley is a punchline in a lot of a lot of fans' eyes, but Tony has been a PR guy in the NFL for almost 30 years. Like, he used to work down in Houston with the Oilers when they were the Oilers. Like, it tells you how long this guy's been doing this. The PR strategy of the Washington Redskins comes from on high, and it's a, it's a strategy of paranoia and buffoonery. And in many ways, actually, I probably shouldn't make that analogy. God, SNL was good last night. That's all I'll say about that. Um, <laughs> when, when your public relations staff has to defend things that are indefensible, you're, there's no win situation. And some people handle that better than others. And uh, the Redskins don't necessarily fall into that. 
With that said, organizational disagreements happen. They are healthy in a lot of ways. You want people who think the same from a philosophy standpoint, but do not necessarily feel like they have to have the same thoughts at all times. Because disagreements and then finding compromise is typically how the best ideas happen. It's how our political system is supposed to work. Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, progressives, uh, slash liberals, however you want to phrase the sides of the aisle, um, right and left, come together, compromise, and find something that works best for everybody. In an organization, you have the money people, the football people, or the, the sports-specific people, the basketball people, the baseball people. You have coaching staff. You have front office. Coaching staff looking really more win right now. The front office supposed to have a long view of uh, an organization. And these ideas all come together and are weighed by the various people in charge. Ultimately, you have someone whose job it is to make ultimate decisions and to weigh those things and, and make decisions based off what carries the most weight. And you move forward as an organization. Now, the Redskins have someone in Scott McLuhan who most fans believe that he is the one who is ultimately responsible for those decisions. And in many ways, he has been. But the reality is, Jay Gruden has a very, a very, very significant voice. Um, Bruce Allen and Daniel Snyder obviously have significant voices. But their voices carry different weights in different parts of the decisions. And when it comes to the public relations side of this, in other words, what we are allowed to consume as media and thus you as fans through us, the media vehicle, Bruce Allen's voice is louder than Scott McLuhan's. Is this smart? No. Not even close. Bruce Allen is a man who, look, I know smart people who respect Bruce. And so I'm not going to come out here and tell you that he's a total buffoon. But you go to the press conference a couple of years ago. You go to some of the other decisions and public comments he's made, winning off the field, et cetera, et cetera. And you go to the fact that he can't say the freaking quarterback's name right. Kurt. Man, that exchange with Grant and Danny at the Super Bowl was hilarious. Kirk knows it. Kirk knows Bruce can't say his freaking name right. So it's a walking, he's a walking parody, a walking caricature of Redskins dysfunctionality. Like embodied is Bruce Allen. But who gets to talk is really insignificant compared to what happens behind closed doors. And just keep that in mind. I know it's, it's easy, and maybe even based off of Redskins history, completely and totally understandable to freak out at any hint of dysfunction, any hint of going the wrong way, because the Redskins have, have, have a history of you can't have nice things. But try to remain calm, because I can tell you Sauce with knowledge of the situation. Last year, 
there was attempts at executive wing interference in free agent process. And Scott McLuhan held off. Hey, no, we're going to do this this way. When it comes to the actual football operation, it is my understanding that Scott McLuhan is still in charge. Now, is there more pressure this year? Yes. Should there be more pressure? Based off results, yes. I've been telling you for months. The dirty secret of 2016 in Redskins world is Scott McLuhan had a really, not a really bad year. He had a poor year. 2015, pretty remarkable. From bringing in different guys in the draft uh, that were helpful, guys like Jamison Crowder, to some of the free agents he brought in midseason, guys like Will Blackman, to sixth-round pick Kaishan Jarrett. Well, Jarrett gets hurt. Uh, they try to move Blackman to safety, and that doesn't go nearly as well as it did with him at nickel corner. Um, you know, the free agency acquisitions outside of Josh Norman weren't nearly as magical. Um, some of the draft picks, like Matt Jones, and the lusters off the Scott McLuhan bust. He's got another year to figure it out. At least, I'd say he's probably got more than that. If you're smart, it's more than that. Because, remember... Part of the reason continuity is important is if you don't exhibit the ability to display continuity, no one's going to ever want to come to your team. If Scott McLuhan goes back-to-back winning seasons and has another competitive year this year, even if they don't make the playoffs, but they're in the mix till late, Jay Gruden has them in the mix till late, and whatever, you know, the season plays out in a way that, it's not obvious you have to fire them and you do who are you going to sign that's better who's going to come and be like you know what I think I can fix that because I'm definitely going to be given the time the answer is nobody the answer is nobody so your reputation as an organization is important stability is important continuity is important being good is important and these guys are at the very least good i don't know if they're great but they're at the very least good and so keeping them moving forward is is important and if that if bruce allen and daniel snyder can't get wrap their heads around that then yeah this organization is screwed but i don't think we're there yet so i would tell you jr who tweeted me and completely distracted the show one segment in although i think i did that pretty well for doing it off the top of my head uh to to relax first a trip behind the scenes uh and then and then uh we'll get to the ownership and sports topic which is why pj was playing owner of a lonely heart uh so my buddy brandon's listening who works with me uh at at one life fitness out in reston where i do my personal training uh gig and we do a class on saturday mornings and he's always making fun of me because I half plan everything. I have, like, I'll have an idea for the class, but the actual specifics of implementation typically get left of until it's time to execute them. It's like, all right, let's see how many people actually show up and what equipment's available. And I kind of got this idea, but most of my ideas in life are half-baked. 
And then, and then we, we have a, a bit of spontaneity. And so he's blowing me up, laughing at my dumb ass uh, for the way the last segment closed, which was me looking at PJ going, hey, I wrote a bunch of stuff down. What was I going to talk about again? So the way this show works is I write down ideas of stuff I want to talk about. I talk about them until we run out of stuff to talk about on that topic. And then I move to the next idea. And sometimes I forget to double check what the next idea is. And you get the end of last segment. So just understand, we're flying on the seat of, by the seat of our pants on a train track. We don't really know where the train's going, but the track exists. And that's all that really matters. We're on a track. We just don't know where it's going. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. I think it makes for a better show rather than at 1015, we will discuss blank. I got to do that with interviews when they're live. But like this morning, I'm going to run back a conversation I had with Amy Trask earlier in the week. When? I don't know. When I I feel like it. Tentatively in my head, it's at 1030. But we'll see if this ownership topic catches fire and people want to talk about it. We'll keep talking. The idea here on a Sunday morning is you can turn me on, turn whether you're on a drive somewhere or maybe you just you enjoy the show and you, you're listening with your Sunday morning coffee and you can hang out for three hours and not get bored. That's my goal. And hopefully I don't suck at it. All right. With that, with that we close the curtain and get back into the show itself. Um, although, PJ, you look like you're searching some kind of audio. What, what are you trying to find? What trouble are you trying to get me in? Next, what were some of the other things we were going to do this morning? I, this I had a whole show sheet, and then and then I didn't didn't pull it up. <laughs> it's here. Should I tweet out the show sheet? Why not? All right, maybe I'll do that. It's it's really not much. Like I can pull. I should. Here's what I should do: pull up a rundown. Like because I used to do full on rundowns, and like my college show, super detailed. There were high. There were color, it was like a fruit salad, bro. There were there were colors everywhere. Like a green highlight, man. I had a sound bite. Uh, I would I would like in pink highlight the teas. Like I, I scripted all my teases. Sometimes I'll still do that if I have a really good one. But then the problem is finding it when I I think this, it's time to discuss this particular topic next. Now it's just like here I'll read my show sheet on the air. Kerr Simmons exchange on why players are socially aware, socially aware of 47 minutes. By the way, PJ, I need you to pull that. I'll talk to you about that in a second. Um, there's a moment on the Bill Simmons podcast I thought was interesting and worthy of discussion. Um, hatred in sports, owners, Trask replay, this, that, and the other thing, Caps, are you in? That's the show sheet. That's the plan for today. And somehow that'll turn into three hours of radio. And hopefully it doesn't suck. And with, with that, with that, um, we're out of time in the segment. <laughs> so, so that's good. Here, let's see if we can formulate a good tease next. Coming up next on 106.7 The Fan, the two worst owners in sports were in the news this week, which begs the question, what makes a good owner? We ask you at 800-636-1067. Next on The Hoffman Show. On the fan. See what were some pro, of the other things it. we were going to do Shut this morning? No, turn th- no one oh. covers the Wizards like 1067 Lofan.
Oswald looks down to discover that the nice, safe carpeted floor beneath him has disappeared. And possibly, he is suddenly swaying on a wooden plank, the width of a diving board, 30 feet above a rusty pit. His heart races, just the slightest wobble could be fatal. Safety is merely eight feet in front of him, a distance the stressed wall chooses to cover on tiptoes. He's about halfway there when somebody nearby gives him an instruction. Turn and step off the plank. Wall shakes his head. He won't do it. After telling himself over and over this can't possibly be real, he finally turns to his right, steps off the plank, and plunges into the abyss below. Then Wall peels back the virtual reality headset off of his face, relieved to rejoin the safety of the physical world as we know it. That's how the article starts on ESPN.com. Tom Haberstroh wrote it. Tom does a phenomenal job covering the NBA at large, but specifically when it comes to sports science and technology. And the Wizards are out ahead of the virtual reality world, and Tom was able to chronicle that. And with that, we bring in Tom Haberstroh of ESPN.com. Tom, how are you, my friend? Good to talk. It's been way too long. Yeah, it's been way too long. Uh, It's great to be on the show. And I got to say, Craig, if I write a book... You're going to be voicing the audiobook. Yes, that's really sure. all I did that for. Yes. Wasn't to hook people into the segment. It was just to secure that. Um, so you get writing and uh, I'll warm up the vocal cords. Hey, man, uh, that was awesome. Um, I, I think I just wrote it for you. You know, some movie, <laughs> movie script like writers, they write parts for certain people, certain actors. Like, I think I wrote it for you. You Craig, got me down. So. You got me down. Um, I'm always interested when you write these kinds, whether it's a technology piece or a statistically driven piece, how you you find it. And, and we did a podcast over the summer and you talked to me about some of the, the statistical pieces where you'll just you notice something and you're working on some spreadsheets and you notice a pattern, whatever it is. When it comes to the technology pieces, how do you find these stories? Well, uh, if you remember, well, I don't know if you read it, but there was a, um, a big feature I wrote a month about a month ago about Kawhi Leonard and Stephen Curry uh, using strobe light glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, to train the brain. Uh, basically, they're putting on these blinders uh, so that when they don't wear these blinders, everything seems to move slower, and they actually train on the basketball court using these go- these goggles that are kind of cutting edge, um, kind of secretive. Uh, a lot of people didn't want to talk about this. Uh, Michael Jordan used to wear it, um, and that was a secret. So, like, a lot of these stories, um, I talk to people around the NBA, and they're like, oh, have you talked to so-and-so about their new technology? And I'm like, oh. No, I'll, I'll get up with them <laughs> soon. And so it's really word of mouth. Um, it's talking to people. It's knowing that this stuff isn't going away. Uh, this side of sports, um, this blurry side of what's allowed to, what, what are you allowed to use? Um, is it okay, Tommy John surgery? Like, think about that. Like, we, we're okay with players restitching their arms um, and their elbows to their forearm and they come back oftentimes a better pitcher, you know, and it's just this weird world where I think it's only going to get trickier where teams are using virtual reality. Teams are using chips. Um, teams are using trackers, sleep trackers. All this new technology is going to become synonymous with the sport. And you're lucky there in DC, the wizards are using virtual reality to help guys train the brain um, for competition. So one of the examples I talk about is Jan Nahimi, uh, the oft-injured big man, $64 million. They're doing everything they can to make sure that he is going to be a better free-throw shooter. And one of the things they're doing is they show him video in virtual reality of him repeatedly making free-throws. 
And a lot of these guys have confidence issues. When they go to the line, all they think about, you know, DeAndre Jordan has talked about it at length. Andre Drummond, another guy using virtual reality. They get, they psych themselves out. You know, if I say to you right now, Craig, and all the listeners, you know, don't think about a pink elephant right now. You're going <laughs> to think about a pink elephant. You're going to, you have that image in your head. So all these guys that come to the free throw line and they say, don't airball it. Like, don't screw up. Don't mess up. And that's what the Wizards are trying to do is to kind of coach that away and to have Jan Mahimi only thinking about makes, not thinking about misses. And that's where virtual reality steps in. That's really cool to be able to, for these guys to be able to see it. What about uh, one of the ways that I've uh, seen it used before? I don't remember which reporter did the piece, but someone did a piece with Stanford, which is where this technology kind of originated. Yeah. Um, about their football uh, quarterback, Kevin Hogan, who's actually a local kid from the, the D.C. area, um, being in situations and, and being able to kind of move in, in a quote-unquote pocket and, and see a defense and, and react. So in a basketball sense where you're not be able to, being able to stand in a pocket and see what's going on, but a game that's in constant motion, how does that actually work of putting someone in a first-person scenario and then reacting to, to people and and uh, the other nine players on the floor yeah. moving. Is that something that's possible? Um, not yet. Uh, the good thing about football being a quarterback is it's a lot of stationary looking over the defense. Uh, the best comparison for basketball is a pick and roll. Um, when you're John Wall in a pick and roll and you're seeing the defense move the, on the back line, you've got to be able to pick up certain things. And the cool thing about virtual reality is they can do that right now with John Wall is coach him on what to be looking for in pick-and-roll defense is no different than a blitz package in, in the NFL. So, uh, you know, Cousins might be looking at where the blitz is coming from, which cornerback is, is coming in. Same thing with pick-and-roll defense. It's a little more fluid, but they're kind of looking, all right, is the, is the center jumping out on the screen? Like, where is the rotation coming from? These are things you can coach uh, players in pick-and-rolls, but you can look at other stationary moments in the basketball game, free throws, inbound passes you know if you're a defender on the weak side um looking at vr you can kind of look at um you know what should you be doing when a pick and roll happens and the rotations where are the rotations coming from so you know it's a little tougher with basketball because as you said there's a lot more movement it's a lot more fluid and right now we don't have the technology to pull that off right now where you can move and be in vr um but they're just you know there's something i mentioned at the tail end of the article is they're trying to coach players on what it's like to be hungover. Not that they need to be coached on what it's like, but <laughs> seeing the difference of, okay, I'm sober, I, I had a full night's rest, uh, my reaction times are on point, everything's good. Now let's switch into the VR mode where you're in hangover mode. And hangover mode is I'm, uh, where my reaction times are bad, I'm not seeing things well, like I'm not able to like move my feet as much. Like that's the type of stuff that is very, very uh, intriguing for NBA players. Is maybe this isn't just about basketball. Maybe this is just life. Um, and that's a, that the opening with John Wall. That's what I was getting across. Is they want to show the Wizards want to show how immersive this is and how influential it is and how it can really change your emotions. Because science says that when you're wearing these headsets, these VR headsets and you are looking in the mirror at someone who has a different skin color, a different age, a different gender, you, in four minutes, Craig, you, com- you completely believe that you are that person. It takes four minutes for your brain to adjust and to 
transform into that person. So that's the kind of power we're talking about with virtual reality. And I don't know where this is going with basketball players or NFL players or baseball players, but I'm covering it. And I think it's one of the most interesting parts of sport is how they can use technology to make you a different, a better and more efficient player on the court. The social aspect of that definitely stuck out to me. That's a different conversation for a different time, but it is it is a worthy part of the article, and I'm really glad you included it. Um, Tom Haberstroh is with us. Tom Haberstroh writes for ESPN.com uh, about all things NBA, but specifically here we're discussing an article of virtual reality uh, that the Wizards are using. So when you when you just look at the, the sports end of it, you know we don't know where it's going. We know some of the things they'd surely like to be able to do that we just discussed, but um, outside of like, okay, so actually take, take me inside. I don't know if you got a chance to put this, this headset on, but like, what is it? What, what are these guys actually seeing? For instance, when Jan Mahimi is at the free throw line, is it a third person of themselves? Is it a first person? Um, and, and how does yeah, that work? It's first per Yeah, it's, it's first person. So like, uh, you can do third person or first person. So you can look down and see your own hands catching a basketball and then shooting at the free throw line. So it's first person. You think you're there. So I wore this um, as Kelly Oubre. So I'm now Kelly Oubre. Are you a lefty? I am not lefty, so I was completely disoriented, but it was really cool. I was like, oh, I'm ambidextrous now. Like I totally know how to shoot left-handed. So you can do that. Um, But the the interesting thing here also is, and and Jan Mahimi talks about it, who's playing tonight uh, after a few weeks of dealing with knee issues, um, you notice certain things when you're immersed in this virtual reality world. You notice where your hands are. You notice where your feet, your footwork. You notice your, your stance. Um, these type of things, when you're watching on a laptop or watching on your phone, you're distracted. You're not immersed into it. And so you're not really focused. I mean, a lot of these players are just like you and me, where they're all the time on Twitter, texting with family, looking on Facebook, Snapchat, whatever. Um, but when you're in VR, you don't have that. So coaches are really intrigued by this, this idea that you can go over plays. You can sit on the bus and watch plays. Uh, you can learn the playbook without actually being on the court. I mean, you could be on the road in your hotel room and be like, you know what? I'm going to go over the new playbook, the new set of plays, the new inbounds plays. I'm going to look at their new defensive coverages, and I don't have to be on my feet to do it. And if you talk to any strength coach, any sports scientist, they'll say, Getting these guys on their feet for as little time as possible, every minute counts. And so virtual reality really, really helps assisting in that area because they need to be coached, um, and this really helps them see these things in their playbook without actually needing 10 players on the court at all times. All right, I have two more questions for you. And producer Vic, I apologize. I'm going to murder the clock here. And Earl, update anchor. I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait. Blame uh, it on me. Blame yeah, it on me. No, cool. it's it's fine. It's Tom's fault. It's not my fault at all. Uh, it's Tom's fault. Um, I, this is a, a stupid radio question, but I'm going to ask you it anyway. Of all of these things that you've you've looked at and studied and reported on, is there one specific piece of technology that you're just blown away by more than any other? So I guess the, the simple uh, dud way to ask it is, what's the coolest thing that you've reported on technology-wise? Oh, that's a great question. Um, the strobe lights are just crazy. Um, the strobe lights where these guys, uh, Michael Jordan, Steph Curry, uh, Kawhi Leonard, they wear these goggles and it blinds them um, to kind of slow down your brain. And when you, when you actually play on a court without these things, 
uh, it feels like you're playing in slow motion. So if you Google my name, it's uh, it's really hard to spell H A B E R S T R O H strobe lights. Uh, the story should pull up, uh, but there's that. Um, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of stuff like the NASA, uh, the head of chief, the chief of astronauts at NASA talks about wiggling your toes as a, as a, a technique to calm your, yourself down and to lower your heart rate. It's something he's teaching uh, athletes. Uh, he's talking to the Houston Rockets before about, um, you know, how do I, when I step to the free throw line or I'm, I'm about to take a big shot in a game, how do I calm myself down? And apparently, for whatever reason, and everyone's listening, probably doing this themselves, when you wiggle your toes for whatever reason physiologically, that helps lower your heart rate and calm down. So those little tidbits um, can not just help basketball players at the free throw line. It can help anyone, a job interview, even going on to uh, Craig Hoffman's radio show, I might have been wiggling my toes before I got on the hit. All right, that's enough from you. Um, actually, that's a lie because I said I had two more questions, and now I have one more. And I'd like to ask you an actual basketball question um, because you do more than just write about cool technology. You, you cover the league and have a really interesting take on it. So uh, the most generic version of that question would be, what do you make of what the Washington Wizards have done since mid-November, um, and, and where do you rank them in the Eastern Conference right now, if you had to power rank? Uh, right yeah, right now they're in that second tier behind the Cleveland Cavaliers, but um, it, I can't pick between Boston, Washington, and uh, and Toronto. And that's something that well, I couldn't say a few weeks ago. But uh, John Wall, I don't think he gets enough credit around the league for having multiple knee surgeries last offseason and coming in and looking this good. Um, I think it speaks to the, the performance staff, the way that he looks so fresh out there, so fast, and so confident out there. And then you combine that with Bradley Beal, who is, looks great, um, who's scoring 40 points. It seems like every time I check the box score, he's got another 40. So those two guys last year when they were on the court together, they were not good. The Wizards were not good with that pairing on the floor. And this year it's a completely different story. So give Scotty Brooks a lot of credit to actually have results so soon um, after taking over the job for Randy Whitman because he's absolutely maximizing that backcourt. Um, to where we thought they would be. And you got to give John Wall credit, the, the medical staff, the performance staff there in Washington, because they are doing incredible things with his body. Uh, he looks great out there. No doubt about it. He's playing at an absolute all-star level, deserving to be there. Tom, appreciate all of the time, all of the time that we, we extra blew through the clock here. Um, I could talk to you about this stuff forever. Perhaps we'll do this again soon and, and dive into some of the other stuff. Always love reading your stuff, dude. And, and we've, this has been way too long. We'll do this again soon, I promise. Hey, don't forget about the audiobook, okay? You got it. You, just, you, you do the writing, and I'll, I'll, I'll have the pipes ready. <laughs> Appreciate All you, right, man. man. Take it easy. That's Tom Haberstroh of ESPN. He's so good at what he does, um, and that's, that's all of what he does, covering the league um, just generally and then, and then the specific stuff that he does. You can follow him on Twitter as well, at Tom Haberstroh, H-A-B-E-R-S-T-R-O-H. That'll do for this week's edition of the Best of Show. Thanks to Amy and Tom for joining me during the week. Coming up this week on the show as we sit here on February 12th recording this and compiling this here podcast. So coming up this coming Tuesday, 6.30 to 7, DC's pregame. Then following the college basketball game that follows that show, uh, we will be back on for overtime. It'll be about 9, 9.30 by the time I hit air, uh, going until midnight. The next night, Wednesday night, be on 6.30 straight through until 10 p.m. And then Friday evening on WQAM in Miami before another edition of The Hoffman Show Sunday from 9 to noon on 106.7.
fan. All right, that'll do. Thanks for listening. See you on the radio.